0: G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting.
1: All right. Well, welcome back again, everybody. Uh, another episode of the Hunter's Campfire. We're, we're now rocking through them. We've, we've got quite a few of them on the go now, and we're really deep diving into some of the specifics about uh, parts that we can get to and equipment that we should be taking and the like. Uh, but tonight we've got uh, a special guest, uh, Adrian Fishley. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Adrian.
2: Oh, thank you very much. It's uh, good to be here, guys. Yeah, no,
1: it's good to, good to take a little while to organise it, but it's, it's the way these things go. Uh, but for those that don't know Adrian, uh, Adrian currently is uh, part of the Australian Deer Association, uh, like Mark and I am. Um, sitting in a role which is the Queensland State Executive Officer role uh, which I'll get Adrian to talk to a little bit uh, but not too much detail we'd we'd prefer to be getting into uh, some information about one of our favourite parks. Uh, We had an episode not long ago which was all focused on the Nundle system where Mark and I shared our views on the best ways to get there, how to hunt it, um, the ins and outs of Nundles from the weather to the slippery roads and the things that you need to be uh, careful of. Now, I got into uh, hunting that block. I think the first person I ever spent time with in Nundal, Adrian, was yourself. And uh, you gave me uh, uh, a few lessons in how to hunt that block and a few of those lessons uh, I haven't forgotten. Uh, I, I still to this day think you believe that I put a satellite tracker on you and followed you around the park and found all your favorite spots. Uh, because the way it sort of went was Adrian left in the morning and by some miracle uh, we bumped into each other uh, at, at various places around the park and that place is so immense uh, that shouldn't just happen. Um, now the truth of the matter is I didn't put a GPS tracker in your car although I thought that was a great idea in hindsight I probably should have done that. You've got a wealth of knowledge into that park and uh, I look forward to sort of diving into that with you. Um also, the usual suspects, uh, Mark. Good evening. Good to have you back uh, hosting again, and, and I'm sure we'll make this a, a great session.
0: Yeah, look, it's a it's, it is a good one because um, I've never shot a deer in Nundal without Adrian being present. Though, yes, though I've I've he's never been with me when I've shot pigs, so he only appears when deer are about. When the pigs there, he stays in camp. So yeah, so it's a funny thing with with Adrian and I. Um, and that yeah, that deer still on the wall downstairs. That was a that was a nice that was a nice fellow deer, and also the Adrian's the only person I know to take a red out of there.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, we've I've seen a few reds come out of there now, but um, was it a was it a trophy animal, Adrian, or a, or a
2: hind? Uh, well, it depends on your perception of a trophy. But antler wise, it was a ten point red stag and. It was the poster um, for the New South Wales Game Council at that time, but they put in many of their magazines. So it was reasonable,
1: yes. We'll have to drag that one up and put it on the uh, on the Facebook page for people to have a look at.
0: It is. It's a good photo, that one.
1: No, that's good. All right, well, Adrian, it'd be good if we can just start off. Um, be, be keen to understand just a little bit about yourself uh, and uh, really your hunting interests. You've got a, a fairly big history in hunting, and. I certainly know you as the state forest guy, the ADA guy, and, and you do a lot of hunting overseas as well. So, um, yeah, just a bit about yourself for the, for the listeners, it'd be great,
2: man. No? Yeah, look, hunting's been part of my life since I was a child, starting, you know, shooting the 22 with the father, chasing rabbits. Um, and it kind of went from there. I progressed, you might say, moved up in the species, um, moved on to goats and pigs and, you know, that, yeah, enjoyable times and then I got interested in these things called deer and saw them occasionally in magazines and the lure of adventure, you know, the high country, the mountains, chasing a lucid stag, kind of me And uh, look for uh, like minded people as well and Ended up joining the Australian Deer Association 25 years ago, I think. I got to uh, share my experiences. I went on a hunter education course, it was the first one ever held. Mm. I met a very like-minded young fella there and uh, my hunting partner for many years. Yeah, since this young fella took me out and uh, helped share his experiences. About uh, red deer hunting. Um, back then, deer hunting was a bit of a secret, it was a boys' club thing. They'd say someone, Where did you shoot that? and they'd say, yeah, Behind the shoulder. So lots of secret spots. And it was hard to get that access. And, uh, I worked with the Australian Deer Association and we worked with landowners to open up land for our members to hunt on. share that experience of deer hunting. And uh, somewhere along that journey, down in New South Wales, core um, ADA members, members of the Shittus and Fishers Party, um, pushed a piece of legislation through which actually finally succeeded in opening up state forests for hunting, for the likes of you and I. Uh, I jumped right on board of that. I was really behind that belief that. that uh, Crown land, it's land for the people. We should be another user of of that resource and animals on it. And I think that my first experience on hunting in New South Wales was probably somewhere 10, 15 years ago now. It was around 2005. And so I was an advocate for that, I'm a trainer. A lot of testing of people you have to meet certain criteria of education and test to be able to come down in New South Wales. I think I held the record for the most trained, tested people outside yes, of New South Wales at one stage. And uh, to back up that, it's like it's good just teaching people and um, getting them trained up, but I wanted to share that experience of hunting with them. So not only would I Sure, they're trained up. i try and encourage them to join our association. There wasn't a requirement, but uh, you know, come along and hunt with us in New South Wales. Many hunts New South Wales hunted 40 different state forests. And um, one I'll talk about tonight in particular is the Nundal region. That's become a, a favourite of mine over the years. And I think I hunted that the first year it opened up, and uh, it's been a, a pilgrimage. It's been a journey every year for me to go down there. Um, it's a lovely piece of country; it really is. Mm. And uh, both of you have been down there hunting with me. Very um, true. Very true. So, it's so the land in that region I refer to as Nundal. There's not just Nundal State Forest. There's a number of forests in that region. You know, and the ones close-knit to each other, Nundal, Hanging Rock, Terrible Billy, Fugalo. And if you wish to uh, drive a little bit further, you've got uh, Ramuka and many other forests as well. And all this area has reasonable amounts of game for hunters to pursue. And it's a diverse range of game. So I've hunted anything from rabbits and hares to pigs, to goats, to fallow deer, um, and to red deer, and uh, red deer cross as well. Um, And it's a sort of land that can be suitable to a beginner hunter and to advanced hunter. For hunters who have experienced private land, it's totally different. It's, it's public land and it has many different sorts of pressures and it's something you have to come grip with. It's, it's not a high population of animals, but it's a challenge. Um, you can go down to Nundur, you can drive a two-wheel drive vehicle. And many hunters who have come down with me have. You can come down with a basic sort of equipment as well. These sorts of things may limit your experience, but at least it's a footstep into hunting in that area. I remember the first trip I did go down, I had many Queenslanders with me, and we kind of pulled up, and most of the Queenslanders thought it was getting a bit chilly and they turn on the heater in their cars are driving down. And we finally went to a camping spot, and this camping spot was Ponderosa Park in uh, edge of Nundle, and in between, hanging rock and Nundle State Forest. They hopped out of the car, and they all shivered and cried. How cold it was! And got back into their vehicles. So I think we had arrived. Um, I think they had arrived uh, somewhere mid morning, and it was like five degrees. And for someone that come out from Queensland, it was like a warm twenty-eight degrees. Got out of the car, and it's five degrees. And those people then are. Uh, um, got back in the vehicles, drove to Tamworth and went to a store and purchased some warmer clothes and some wet weather clothes as well because uh, the weather can be extreme. It can be um, below zero. I've been there where it's snowing and it can be there where it's hot and balmy as well, um, I think, for five years in a row. It just rained every time I went there. Uh, <laughs> so it's... It's definitely the region itself is is, is diverse. And um, yeah, it, it's great. So a beginner can go down on a two-wheel drive, stay in a camping spot. There's a dedicated camping spot you can stay in. You can put up a cheap Kmart tent, there's no facilities there. Um, you could stay down at the Nundell Hotel or Motel, just drive up every day. It's about a 17-kilometer drive up the Bitchman Road to Get to um, the forests, but you do have to drive on gravel a little bit. What you probably won't be able to do is to drive off onto many of the tracks, especially the clay based tracks. That you drive. It's very slippery if it's wet. Um, and as you step up in your equipment, you can go to more challenging areas. Um, Nundal has country which is reasonably but undulating. Then it has sheer cliff faces as well. So you need to decide what is the sort of hunting I want, where you need to go. So your fitness can be to, from zero you know, to a high. No fitness. Um, it's just your limit of your fitness, your equipment of where you're going to go. Um, does not mean where you go. There's going to be animals to hunt. Um, as I said, Nundle is public land. It is forest land, so it's a mixture of um, pine, ponderosa, camping ground. It's named after ponderosa pine.
1: Not after the pond. Who would have
2: thought? <laughs> and it's uh, so the
1: uneducated Kiwi and me didn't know there was such a thing as a ponderosa pine. I've, I've learned.
2: There you go, ponderosa pine. It's also um, full of eucalypt. Country as well, in between the pine and on the steep country. Um, and because it's logging country, it actually gets logged. So you might find an area, and I will speak to how I find these areas, which has deer in it this year. But you go back next year, and that five square kilometers of land, which is abundant with the game, has now been cleared totally. You're lucky to find a rabbit on it doesn't mean the deer disappeared, they've just moved. And so from year to year, the herds can move around. because of the impacts of logging and the pressure of logging and hunters and other activities of um, the users of the park as well, whether that be trail bikes, four-wheel drive, um, grey nomads in their camper vans, all those sorts of things impact and push the deer around. Um so, what might have been easy hunting for you this year in a nice flat country, it may not be next year because it's it's gone, and you might need to find another spot. So don't have the expectations as you go down year to year, year after year, that your favorite spot will even be there anymore. It could have been cleared, dug up with dozers, changed. So usually when I go down there, I Keep that in the back of my mind. I do check for favourite spots, if that's what you want to call it, to see if they still exist, to still see if there are signs of deer. But I might take that uh, first day I'm down there and, and just go for a drive and see how the land, the forest has changed, has been impacted. Uh, where has logging been, the fire's been through, is there regrowth now? Um, and look for signs of deer. And a lot of that I will record. I'll put it on a GPS on look it on a map, and I'll get a concentration of these sorts of waypoints. I've put markers on my uh, GPS to try kind to of indicate to me this is where the majority of deer are. And while I'm talking about this, it's primarily around the rut period, so for April. Um, the first evening I'm um, down there, I usually stay out a little bit later. Actually, I like to stay out many hours after dark in my car. I like to listen to see if the bucks are croaking, see if there are bucks in the area that I found a lot of sign. But, um, a lot of times I'll try and do a triangulation on where the rutting stands are. I can hear the croaking, shooting waypoints off my GPS, moving up the road, having another listen. Shoot another bearing. Try and work out. Okay, they're around this area on the on my um, map. And next, you know, and go home, then have some dinner. Formulate a plan of how we're going to get back there in the next morning before dawn. Typically, when there's a lot of pressure on the a fellow deer down there, the broken and be very intermittent. it to the point sometimes, I've been down there some years and heard no croaking at all, but I've seen fallow bugs. Mm. If you're lucky enough to be there and um, the impacts and the pressure on them is it's not that severe and they are croaking, it's good to get out before dawn and to, to hear them croaking, and then to formulate a plan to get in on the fallow deer. Um, we mentioned earlier those red deer down there. Red deer... Is a rarity. So, um, probably for every thousand fellow deer shot down there, one red deer is taken. So it's not a wow. Oh, not
1: that's awful. incredible. I, ne- I I never would have thought that. I mean, not that I've taken any red deer myself, but uh, over the last well, probably uh, not last season. Last season was horrible because of the fires and the and the and the drought and everything. It really impacted a lot of things, but. The, the years prior to that, I think we may have seen red deer on trips three three years, you know, the last three years before that, only one was taken. But um, I hadn't considered that that was just pure luck and chance.
2: <laughs> yes, no, no, but you're very, very lucky in that. Wow. Okay. Yep. Um, so from time to time, um, they do mob up very small mobs, like five red deer, and uh, especially around that brush. Uh, you know, and the male is looking for them. Um, typically, you will find them um, coming up, probably about twenty-five k's, 20, 15 to twenty k's, up the main road. Um, Often, another little state forest. A lot of the red deer came off an uh, old deer farm thirty years ago. Um, other mobs have appeared. Um, so, it's, as they move through. Um, there's only small mobs, that don't seem to be breeding up mm. to the fellow deer. So if you get a red deer down there, you're very lucky. I'm
1: assuming then, Adrian, uh, the uh, elusive red deer Wapiti hybrid uh, is is 1 to a 1,000 red to the hybrid.
2: Yes, so, I mean, I've hunted elk, He's, um, you might see behind me, and um, elk, Footprints are a lot larger than Red Deer. And I was hunting with a friend of mine one year and I found these footprints. We just looked at them and went, that's not a Red Deer. It's, it's a third the size, more and wider. It's, it's large and it's like, that's an elk cross. And I've spoken to many locals and um, they verified that there were red property crosses. Um, to be found in the area, in the region. And I found these footprints. And the, that was my entire hunting trip, was following footprints. Yeah. For the next few years, I went back to that similar area. And I found footprints occasionally. And I just looked for that exclusive animal. And I think I was actually down in Hobart on a conference with the Australian Deer Association. Some fellow I didn't know walked up to me and said, Adrian, I believe you've been chasing an elk cross at uh, the under region. I thought I'd tell you, it was taken last Saturday. I said, oh, really? Okay, well done. Um, it was a 26, a 20, <laughs> 26 point cross, and I've been actually just next door on some private land, and living with the cows for the last year, just walking around with the cows. Uh,
1: A photo of it surfaced somewhere on a forum. I don't think it was Facebook. I think it was on another hunting forum, but I think I I recall talking to you about it.
2: and Ah, We talked about the picture. I haven't been privileged to see a photo of it. Wow. Whatever whatever the animal looked like, it would have been a wonderful trophy because I spent much time chasing that one animal out of many animals down in that Mm. area. (laughs)
1: <laughs> hey, before we before we um, dive in and ask you a bunch more questions about Nundle, um, you've said that you've hunted elk and there's proof on the back wall, uh, and I'm going to make a very reasonable assumption that it's yours, and it came from a trip that you've been on. Um, do you just want to touch on uh, some of those experiences uh, that you've had, obviously overseas ones? Um, how long have you been um, travelling over to America and and various other places?
2: Yeah, like I think for the probably for the last dozen years I've, or more, probably 15 years I've been going overseas. I particularly have um, a friend who I do travelling with, who travels overseas more than I do overseas, About every two years I go overseas. So I've done a number of hunts um, through uh, Canada, British Columbia, hunted for elk, bear, white Eel deer, um, coyote, Um, and a lot of that was public land, and the success rate was very low. Um, I found that if you can save the bit of extra money, um, go on land which is privately owned. I don't mean a kind of wire sort of state, but private owned land. Usually you're chance of success increased exponentially. Um, and uh, one of those is there behind me, the a uh, bit of um, hunting area in New Mexico, I like to go down there. Been down there and hunted elk, horn, antelope and a black bear down there. Mm. It was a different store, type of hunting um, black bear. maybe um, up in Canada I was doing stalking or such, but that was using hounds and that was a different experience. I'm open to trying any sort of hunting. i to different methods. I know it's all humane. So yeah, I've, I've done a number of trips now and uh, got a few more planned. Mm. I can't say it just out of shot. It's a lovely mule deer from Alberta. Average temperatures about minus 18, minus 20. I think. Yeah, cool. uh, in, in the snow, um, you know, that was an experience so itself. It really was the cold. Um, I hope to hunt some more white tail. You know, but that's going to be in the freezing cold as well. Same for wolf hunting. Country of probably minus 30, minus 40. All well, this is all different styles of hunting. So some could be stalking, some could using hounds, some people sitting um, kind of blind, I'm um, just waiting you know, 12 hours a day for an animal to walk in front of me. I've spent seven days on horseback through uh, the Rocky Mountains um, hunting elk. I think I learned to, we relearn- to ride a horse. Um
1: yeah. that was it. fun.
2: Oh, it it was, and everyone made fun of me and the the friends who were with me, they kind of said, look, you need to find a mountain and you just need to do loops around the mountain because he's learnt to ride English-style horse riding school and he's been just going round and round the track, that's all. Yeah,
1: yeah. they can't (laughs) go the other way, can they?
2: (laughs) Oh, no, well, I couldn't. And, and, I mean, I'd ridden an English saddle and then had to drop, jump onto a Western-style saddle. They didn't teach me. (laughs) Um, Mm. I think the first, after two minutes of being on the horse, I did my first uh, river crossing on a horse with snow around and it was freezing cold and the horse and I were swimming. It couldn't touch the bottom of the the river. You know, um, I had to learn how to jump a horse. I jumped a horse many a time and I'd never done that before. I'd never galloped a horse either. My goodness, a horse can gallop when it smells grizzly too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes I've, I've had many different experiences over the years
1: that's amazing Yeah, um, the, um, the we, we've had a, f- uh, a few conversations about Nundal um, some just as, as general conversation and, and some focused on it but um, a, a number of people have commented that the camp that you have at Nundal and they've pretty much all been ADA camps and uh, originally organized by you adrian and 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 you've been down there for at least a decade flat out uh, every year for at least and you'll tell me the, the number of years but um, these uh, the people that I'm talking about they're fairly new to the organization um, they're new to not necessarily new to hunting but they're new to the style of hunting you know a lot of them have come from being shooting on private property and some of them under the lights and they're now getting into the day stalking or the the actual uh, hunting experience um, that we're talking about. And they liken the experience at Nundal to the closest thing that you could get to a US-style hunter's camp.
0: And uh, and I
1: think you've brought that together through these experiences that you've had overseas and and maybe fostered that into the group, Uh, whether you did it by design or whether that's just what happened because you wanted to emulate it. But it's a great testament to that because, um, you know, they, they, these people, and I'm the same, I, I, I agree with them completely, that you come into this camp, you immerse yourself in it, you, you know, you sort of become one with the surroundings, you're not leaving and going to town and, you know, getting out of that zone. You're coming back and talking to people about what you saw, why you missed it, the strategy to go back for it. Hey, look, Adrian, I've, I've found these scrapes. What's your recommendation? How do we deal with that? Uh, right down to the older fellas that come down that don't hunt and they just latch on to you when you come in with an animal because they it's now their time to you know impart their knowledge on you as to how to break that down and care for the animal um so you know there's some really interesting um comments that have come out over the last few podcasts about that and hopefully you'll get to listen to it because it'll put a smile on your face I think because you've helped create that um, but to that point, do you do you feel that that's fairly accurate? Um, have you are there look, any other experiences in Australia that you've found that are anything quite like Nundle?
2: I, I, I do, and and look, what inspired me to set up these um, group Nundle hunts was I've been on a number of Victorian samba hunts on public land as well with ADA members. Um, that's going back twenty years. So it's too many trips down there, and. Um, you know, that large campfire, swags everywhere, icy cold. You know, um, cooking venison, slow cooking venison in the camp oven. You know, it's just a wonderful experience, and um, and and talking to those people down there. This was their every weekend experience that they had, and I'm going. I want my friends and comrades and my association and everyone else to share this. To have this experience, this camaraderie of uh, large groups doesn't mean you're hunting together, but you come back every day or throughout the day and the evening and um, you share your experiences. And whether you take an animal or not, you you usually have a good time. Um, And, I mean, as as I said, it started fairly basic, I think, for the first two years. All I put up was an eight metre by eight minute, eight metre by eight minute Peter, uh, vinyl tarp. I think it was um, one side was Dr. Doolittle number two. I think I'd got it off uh, the Grand Prix racing, you know, hanging down the sides of the uh, skyscraper of the Gold Coast. And I'd drag that down, with a big wire rope, and i tension it up and put that up, and we'd all sleep under there. And I'd uh, kind of realized that part of me is to go to the ground because the wind blows under and freezes you. And it, it developed <laughs> in there. And so we started getting tents and marquees and uh, um, to the pinnacle that you know, you'd have a camp kitchen, you'd have hot running water, you know, gas gas heaters on the water, all that sort of stuff. Huge campfires um, with twenty plus people um, sitting around that, and and the people would change over over the hunting period that I was mm. there. Some people would turn up, stay for a while, and go. Others would come later. But the whole period could be anywhere from 9 to 11 days. Um, people would just turn up. We had, we had people who weren't even members of the association who knew we would be down there, and they'd come down and join us because they liked our company. We've had some good Welshmen who've met us there and actually now are Queensland ADA members. And they drive up from New South Wales. Um, one of them actually has taken up a position on a, a committee. You know, and... Um, and we really we had an unsuccessful journey hunting a deer. And he got up with us and and he took on board what we could you know part with our knowledge and experience. And I think the next year he took four species of deer. Mm. So he stepped up from being unsuccessful, to fully engaged, fully committed, loved it, hooked on deer hunting, and every bit of opportunity we have to learn off others, he took that and 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 Applied what he'd learnt um, and practice his skills, yeah, and been very successful. Up to the point, I hate going and hunting with him now because he always comes back a few deer, and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've taught him too well, but the young shall rule the world. <laughs> um, look, and we've gone down there, and we've been very open to the public as well. So we don't hide what we're doing. We follow the laws and. Um, we go an extra step to make people feel secure, safe. This is the public who are there. And we've engaged and we've um, field dressed um, the uh, off tree in a public area. And uh, I remember one year we had like 20 children sitting in a row um, with their fathers behind and saying, that is where meat comes from. You know, and so forth. There used to be, I think it was a Polish community it used to come down and pick mushrooms. We always thought they were picking mushrooms for drugs, but it's not. It's for a, a cultural uh, dish the, that actual they... Actual forages. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I feel like slimy jacks or something. And um, uh, we invite them to dinner. So they'd come and join us for dinner, and they would share their stories of why they're in Nundal and, and their culture and their traditions. and uh, we'd, we'd share a meal together and uh, had many experiences like that. there. Um, Never had any real negative experience with the public. And they know that hunters are in there and uh, they're both sharing the land and the resources on it. We work well. I've met many a prospector down there. I will sit down there and I might have a you know, hot cuppa with him. They tell me how, how he's going and how long he's been there, for example. It's not always here, I've met couples down there. And they'll say, oh, it's a big old white billy goat on top of that bluff i only watched him two hours ago, you know. Uh, it's
1: not yeah. See ya. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I can't really point where, I, oh, there's a, a you know, vein of gold I saw or whatever. <laughs> no. um, and, and look, I've had that same sort of interaction with um, the law enforcement down there, whether it be DPI or in the old days, the game council, or police officers. Um, and we've always uh, cooperated in a lawful manner with them and informed them of any legal activities going on. Um, it was invite them to share the warmth of a fire. Um, it's pretty cold down there when they're patrolling and, and from time to time they've said to us, yes, well we we're down on this road patrolling this morning and this is what we saw. Thanks again. Bye, we're off. <laughs> you know, so tell us where to send some deer. We can share those sorts of experiences down there as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So if you were look if uh you were a if I was a, a newbie and I wanted to um I wanted to hunt Nandal. How might I go about? And I'm, I'm Brisbane based, or I'm, I'm Queensland based. I've got my R license. I've listened to the podcast. I'm inspired. What do you reckon I, I should do? How how would I go about it?
2: Okay. So first of all, I would suggest for your best success, probably come and join an organisation which partakes and hunting to start with. Australian Deer Association. And or have a conversation with those to see if they do hunts on that land. Um, okay. If that's not, the, and, and then you can then share their experiences. If not, yes, you can go by yourself, um, and it, it may be a longer learning time for you. Um, as I said, you can go down there. Make sure that you get your licence, you know, um, do the education component, lots of stuff. You've got to wear blaze orange when you're down there. What about either have a GPS or a phone with the GPS and maps on it, those sorts of things. Um, you've got to be wary, as I said, it can be from two-wheel drive country to a very rugged country. You need to know the limitations of you, your equipment. I would suggest you fond stubby shorts and a singlet's that's not going to cut it. Temperature can vary from minus five and sleeting and raining to 25 degrees. Um, So you need to be prepared for that challenge, I suppose. And it depends where you are on your journey in hunting. And um, if you depends how committed you are and how much you wish to invest into this, it's something you really want to do, then you're probably going to invest to get good quality shoes, clothing, wet weather gear, warm gear layered. So as it does warm up during the day. You, know, you can take off those jackets and outer layers and so forth. Um, as as you go through the journey, yes, you need to understand the GPS. Yes, you can walk for a long way in Mandel. Having a capable forward drive might get you to points of interest you wish to explore. And um, that being the case, having um, forward drive capable getting there, um, just a forward drive off. The um, dealership floor may not be enough to get to all places down in that area. Um, we've had brand new vehicles go down there, corrugated roads driving in, um, you know, and things have twisted, snapped, steering fluid going everywhere. Uh, Mark, things falling still-
1: off the roof racks, roof racks falling yeah. off the cars. Mark, I think
2: you've got a story there about a, a vehicle going down there and bits and pieces falling off and so forth as well, haven't you?
0: Oh, yeah, I do. Oh, yeah, what was that? You know, um, that happened to me. I, I broke, I broke a truck there one year.
2: Yes. Uh,
1: I had, I had my roof racks come undone and slide off the back of the car. Mm-hmm. And about two kilometers after I zippy tied them back on, the the whole antenna system from my, my two way fell off the front of the tow ball, and I had to go back and find it on the road. This is just the the miles of corrugations that I did between uh, uh, Ponderosa and Tugela. I couldn't believe the roof racks fell off.
0: <laughs> no, I I I was driving with some haste and hit a water bar and blew a shock. And uh, when it blew the shock, it um it at we at the time we thought it hit the um the uh, power the power steering fluid line, but it was actually the um, auto transmission fluid line. The shock blew out and punched the line, so um that was um that was my broken my my four wheel drive down there. But the year before, I, no, or the two years before that, I shot my first animal in Nundle, And that was actually the – I had a look back at the record. Nundle's actually the first state forest I ever hunted. Yeah, right. I started at Nundle. We didn't go to Severn until two ten. We hunted in Nundle in 2009, and then I hunted Pelig at the end of the year.
2: Oh, Pelig like was the end. Okay. Pelig
0: like was in the 2009 Christmas, but I hunted Nundle the rut in 2009, and that year I went down with Tim and we went down in his um Lancer, Mitsubishi Lancer,
2: mm-hmm. so, you know,
0: standard, and that was a standard two-wheel drive and we just drove along Nundle Forest Way until we thought, let's start walking here through here. So you, you did write about, um, you know, not needing a four-wheel drive. Obviously, a four-wheel drive will get you into places that a two-wheel drive won't, but you don't need to be successful. You don't need a four-wheel drive to be successful. Um, um testament to that, we 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 um drove up the road, walked in. What we didn't realise at the time that we were actually relatively close to camp still, because they heard the shots. I well, shot I shot a couple of pigs and when we came back, tampon, and they went, Where were you guys? And I said, I oh, just thought Rod and I said, sound like you just right behind camp. And so we must have been, you know, in e- earshot of camp. So
1: I've also found that owning a four-wheel drive gives you the confidence to poke your nose in places you shouldn't go anyway. Very true. Uh, because it's very easy to go down some of those hills in a four-wheel drive. Well, in fact, even going down them can be hard when you're sliding sideways, but um mm. coming back up of them can be quite a challenge.
0: Yeah. So, I, um, I've 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 in a couple of cut times and I I have let um you know discretion lead to the better part of valor and said, yeah, we're not going down there. Yeah.
1: On I mean, I so. <laughs> uh, there- but to um to, to follow on from mark's question about um, how you would tackle that once you were on the ground assuming you've got the gear right and you know you're feeling new but you've you've gone through the process and and you're there you're in a hunter's camp with a, a bunch of good blokes and they send you on your way go that way son because i'm going that way and i don't want you anywhere near me you know what are you going to look for? You know you, you've got some some interesting uh, hunting habits there that are, that are either rumour or you've told me. I can't remember. But I, I won't share those, um, but you might. Um, how how would you go about it as a newbie? What are you looking for on the ground? Uh, and what's unique, I guess, about uh, Nundle that that you might look out for?
2: Okay. Look, um, the pine forests are uh, lovely to walk under, walk through, nice and quiet. Um, but the pine forests are only somewhere where the deer might um, bed up just for a little bit of cover. Um, they typically will live in the eucalypts. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of eucalypt countries are a lot more rugged. Um, now, understanding also uh, in the pine forests, there are creeks running through the pine forest. And the pines aren't actually usually in the creek. There is native vegetation in the creek. So that might be four, 500 metres wide, that patch following the creek line, you'll find fallow deer down in that thick creek line as well. Um, as I'm against Mark City, was close to camp and come across a few pigs, and most likely that was, you know, the creek down behind the back of um, the, the major campsite. You can get fallow bucks walking in there. I've sent fellas um, who've had just two wood drives, you know, so, um, I've seen deer crossing the road here when I've been coming back and um, hunting at night time. Most likely, uh, their camp is going to be down this track, down the bottom of that creek line. So park your car just off the road so you don't get bogged or anything. and go for a lovely stroll along the track through the pine, and then you'll get into the native vegetation. And look, if you can go down there uh, way before daylight, be there an hour, an hour and a half before dawn breaks. It's lovely and cold and wet. But be down there, be quiet and listen. And listen. you can hear the deer moving through uh, the the brush. you can hear them croaking. and um, you'll follow you'll find hopefully active game trails. Um, now, if we're going down there typically hunting during the rut. And follow deer when they rut, they make a stand. They make a number of stands as well, in their territory, fellow buckwheel. And they'll fresh the the branches which are hanging low hanging branches. They have a particular number of different species they like to rub their antlers up and down against, um, uh, different uh, species of trees, and they'll create a little scrape. So they'll use their paws and they will scrape away the grass and so forth and make a little you know, scratched out pad. They usually will sent up and musk up against the tree where they are. So if you find one of those and it looks active, everything's fresh, so this cleared bit of ground does not have leaves over it. Okay? It's, um, it may even be that there's some wet soil in the middle, and that's from the deer um, urinating, musking, ejaculating, et cetera, under the ground. Okay? You can smell that. If it's active, pull out of there, do not touch it. Do not disturb it, do step into it, pull out. You have found an active scrape. Find a very comfortable spot with a clear firing line to that track going in and out of that scrape. Get a good book. <laughs> your, your, your movement has finished. And I've said this to, to a number of hunters who've gone down there. I said, if you find this, stop going anywhere else. You know where there's a buck. Why are you wandering the country, driving 50 kilometres? You know there's a buck there. we are here to hunt a buck. There's a buck there be patient. Um, and one fellow, I think, he spent three days there and then a buck appeared and he took that buck. Um, he took that shot and he got that buck. Then the big buck stood up behind it and he missed that one. But anyway, the theory worked.
1: Uh, how <laughs> often does that happen?
2: <laughs> the theory worked. And, and that's something I'll say, and I'll do that myself. If I find an acus, acus grave, and, that will become my home. I will try and then get eyes onto that buck. He will come around within a 24 hour period and you will look for those. I have a few spots which are more like what they call a lek. A lek is a communal area where many deer come onto them. And you don't find many of these in Australia. There are a number in South Australia where you get five, 600 fellow um, animals onto those leks. They're particularly in Europe. Um, in these areas, I usually find it's like probably 20, 25 animals during a day will visit that area. They will come to the it's same. It's a natural
1: thing. It's a natural thing. And why, Why I don't understand, if it's a natural thing, why doesn't it happen everywhere that fallow live? So usually, can you
2: explain that? It, um, it's a condition that the fallow, fallow deer particularly, um, they will form a system of challenging each other, the males, they will croak at each other, they will clash and fight antlers, and that will draw more bucks into that area. And um, it's typically an area that is private, so it means it's got cover, but space within that cover for them to congregate, they feel secure, and they will challenge each other, and and the females will be drawn into that area then as well. Hmm. So they will come to that area. So it's different to hunting red deer, where the red deer, the stag, will chase the females. The fallow is the females who will chase the males. And so that's why they go to a scrape. The females will visit a scrape, they will sniff it, they'll smell it, and they'll make a decision either then or when the male turns up whether this is the right male for me. They'll make that decision. and They'll either let him mate or not, and they'll move on, look for another buck, and, and look for those scrapes, etc. The lek is a more communal area. For a number of bucks, we'll be there waiting the females will come in. So... If you ever get an opportunity to hunt where a traditional lek of where there's hundreds of fallow deer in a lek, it is an awesome site. I have actually been to one of those where there's over 600 fallow deer um, on that lek, and I crawled in full camouflage, ghillie suit, right into the middle of it.
0: So w- with the lek, this is a really interesting point, um, with the lek, outside of the rut, do the males congregate at the lick? The changes. Okay, because I shot a fellow deer three weeks ago. Shot a fellow buck three weeks ago on private land in New South Wales, and they were on a on a space. There would have been maybe a, a dozen bucks, mostly of the same size, but also younger ones as well, and the cleared space. Was about the size of a tennis court,
2: where there was the same number of females there.
0: There was—I don't think there was any females there. And the, the reason I don't think there was any female there is because, well, I have to preface that once I saw the antlers, I stopped looking at everything else. So mm-hmm. there could quite 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 possibly been females there, but what it was was the males were all. It actually kind of reminded me of like. Uh, uh, a Billy mob of bachelors. You know, when you see a, a mob of bachelor billies and they're all kind of about the same size. There's no big or small, they're all very similar. That's what this was. It was like a, a, a number of bucks that were very similar size, but then there was smaller bucks, um, much but much smaller, not a little bit, significantly different. And I shot I shot one of the bucks off that. And when we got down, we realized, oh, this this is. A tennis court that they've cleared here it actually looked like a vehicle had cleared that you know that area so quite interesting
2: so yeah at that time of the year most uh european species of there so red and travel will form a bachelor mobs and mm. uh, there's still a bit of a pecking order sometimes there's a bachelor herd of the younger animals and then the older animals um, that can be seen as well and that'll go right through to the drop the antlers They'll still run and run, hang together. Usually they've moved away from their breeding area. You know, studies in uh, up here in Queensland, for example, have seen that uh, you know, they've moved, for example, from uh, Perseverance press Pressbook dams, you know, all the way to Togulawar, you know, and they'll hang around the back of Tugulawa 30 kilometres away. Mm. Then they'll come back to mate with the females, you know, and travel 30 kilometres to come back and do that again, and then hang for a few months. During that breeding season, then move away again. Same, same for fallow deer as well. So, you know, hunting at different times of the year is um, different down there as well, because I've mainly spoken about the rut. But other times of the year, yes, you will get the bachelor herds of fallow together as well. Um, hunting uh, in snow can be different. That changes the environment for them as well. They'll be more out in the open and so forth, as long as they group bachelor herds together. The thing is, Uh, There's a lot of land that bachelor herd might be in a 50 square meter area over you know thousands of square kilometers, you know, so they're not dispersed in one group. It's hard to find where is that, you know, it's not just one group, but where is those groups of bachelor herds? It'll be challenging to find those out of the rut. Um, So, but if you know, if you're a regular hunter down there, you can track those herds. They don't move that much, they usually move to an area where they feel secure and there is a uh, good mineral content in the ground and a uh, good feed, because they're going to put on their weight after the rut, and, uh, getting prepared for the next rut. You know, they've got to put on their body weight, drop these antlers, grow some new ones, get ready for the next um, rutting season. That's the entire existence for male deer. It is to mate. that's it. So if you get to understand that life cycle, you, know, you get to understand the habits of the deer. So it's about getting prepared, putting on body weight, um, getting all beefed up, strong, so you can uh, challenge the other males. Get in and do your mating, to keep the species going. And then you need to recover. You need to go away and recover, put on your body weight and so forth. You know, that is it. They don't play tennis. Mm-hmm. They don't go to the movies. They have one fantastic time of the year. And they spend all year getting ready for it or mm-hmm. <laughs> recovering from it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. it sounds like the hunter.
2: Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's, look, uh, one of the common
0: questions we get asked and uh, uh, to me I, I you know i don't want to be dismissive dismissive of it because it is important to a lot of people and i think it it reflects maybe their lack of experience but the idea of what caliber now i know that there's you know the legality of a caliber and if i remember correctly you carry a 300 wind mag is that right look well,
2: t- typically i carry a yeah, 300 Win. Um, I use that all around the world. So it's, um, you know, it's a Teka T3 Light. You know, um, everything's been <laughs> worked on it. You know, to, to exist in all sorts of conditions around the world in the snow and whatever. I can feel comfortable. I can pick that up with my eyes shut. I can clear it, work it, fire it. My eyes haven't opened yet. I know that firearm back to front. I know the. Um, I know that projectile. I know that caliber. I know where it's going to shoot. Um, but I do have a fallow calibre that I do like and I've gone down there many a time and I have a, a little uh, Remington uh, Titanium 7mm08. 7.08 um, and um, I've taken that down there and I've taken both fallow and red deer with that as well and uh, it's a lovely little light thing it's only five and a quarter pounds I think it is it um, has a, a scope on it um, it's not too heavy, and it's just right. Um, so uh, the good old 300 wind can do a little bit of uh, <clears throat> bruising on an animal. Hmm. Um, you know, so wherever you uh, place that projectile, that one side of the animal, if it's a you know, shoulder or whatever, you know, it's mints. <laughs>
1: um, <More> like super.
2: <laughs> a little mil eight etc. It's, it's a, you know, a lovely flat shooter. Um, there's Some you know wonderful factory ammunition out there. Um, not picking brands or whatever, but like Hornady make like what they call like Magnum load for it. they have SSTs in it. It punch really flat. It shot as flat as my three hundred. And um, so I was comfortable, but I knew the trajectory of it because you know, it's the same as my Winchester uh, three hundred. And um, yeah, so you don't need to have you know a four five eight to go hunting down there. Um, uh, shot distance can be anywhere from a couple of meters mm. to some long range shots, depending on you know, the land you're on. And the, you know, some areas of, uh, of recent times have done a lot of land clearing. Sometimes you catch a fellow out the open and never longer shot there. Um, but you're going to shoot to what you can comfortably do. And you, you feel um, secure in that decision. You can take that shot and so forth. But typically, it's probably 50 yards shooting, I, I'd suggest. Yeah, probably about 50 yards. There's enough undulations and, and um, forest cover, you know, and you find yourself crawling up to get a look at the buck or something, and then you kind of some trees and bushes, and he's right there. You know, it's only 50 metres away. Or well, wherever it's a dove that you wish to harvest for meat and so forth. And, yeah, any, any of the... Uh, legal calibers that the um, dpi list are suitable. Um, I suggest it be something you're comfortable with. Yeah. Or a Firearm, a weapon that you're comfortable using. Um, I've I've seen hunters around the world who've hunted game and they've needed some sort of cannon. They've purchased a cannon and you know they've put a minimal number of shots in it and they go out on a once-a-lifetime hunt and They cannot shoot at it. They miss the animal they're firing at, and we'll they will a eye eyebrow, they're bleeding, and then they're crying, <laughs> very sad. You know, where if they actually took something which they're more comfortable with, they could have secured a shot in there. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say, you need to choose that large game, you need to choose the right caliber. There's no yeah. use choosing a grizzly bear for 22, um, he's going to be doing the chasing. Um, so it's got to be the right caliber. Fallow deer are not a large animal, um, not that they, they don't wear lead as, as well as some animals. Some animals you can hit a reasonable um, you know, weight caliber and power and all that sort of stuff. They seem to hit it in the right spot and it seems to go forever. And fallow deer aren't a very large bone structured animal at all, um, a little fellow doe with um and the guts dropped out. It's about eighteen kilo over the shoulder, 18, 22 kilos. That's not very large. A buck again is twice the size. And more and more. Yeah. Okay. On yeah,
0: more. it's a, it's. A, I, I actually quite like the, the the fact that you spoke about the seven mil 08. I, I, I know from my experiences of seeing other people. I've never owned one, and I kind of, you know, if if I could go back, I'd probably start with the seven miller 08. Um, I, I th- I'm, a, I'm a big fan of it, and I've seen a lot of it used in public land hunting, and it is it is a very good caliber, I think, for for public land hunting. Is it? There, I say a generalist cal- caliber. I mean, there's no such thing really, but it certainly does. I've seen it work very successfully on a number of hunts on public land. So, yeah, I mean, I think people get a little bit over concerned about caliber in that way, and and it, I think you know the point you made is that. A fallow deer is not a tank. It's not going to, you know, you hit it properly with a with a stout bullet with a well-placed shot and, you know, the, the worry is it will not run away. The worry is you're going to have to carry it out. That's what you should be concerned mm. on next day. It, it, you'll, you'll do the job on it.
2: Yes. And, uh, yeah, the carry out down Nundle, in some cases it can be, I can drive up to the vehicle and carry it out and others it can be, it's many hours up and down a hill. Oh yeah, mm. you know, so I think the easiest carryout I had was a uh, ten point red stag I took down there. Um, so I, that was one of the group hunts. And, uh, there was a particular area we um, call the kangaroo paddock, an open paddock. It's council land, but it borders the forest. A lot of people like to walk around that base gear, wandering out to feed on that council land, and. Uh, so, the whole troop had been up there and hunted it extensively, hammered it hard for about seven days, or six days, I think. And then a lot of them went home, and I thought, I'm going to wander up and have a look. I wandered up and parked my uh, vehicle on a crossroad um, near this open clearing, and I just went for a casual walk around the track. That was it. I was coming back, and I'd seen my vehicle. I'd been out for an hour and a half or so. Uh, coming back down, and it's Ponderosa pine, and I kind of looked through and out of the corner my eye, I saw movement, kind of like put my head down. And I see these long legs just walking, you know, through the pines. It's just like a shot out of Canada, you know. Mm. It's like, my goodness, that's mm. a red star. Maybe better if I'm lucky. <laughs> and I, I see it and I look at the angle it's going and it's walking to my car. So I wander down the track and I uh, kind of stopped knelt. He wandered out onto the, uh, the track, looked at my parked car over there at the road there. And he turned around, looked up at me, and I put a 140-grain SST right in the old um, part there, and he kind of jumped, spun around, ran the 10 yards of my car and fell over. So, <laughs> uh, that, that was it. I, I think, well, if I just probably park the car and put the seat back and had to sleep for an hour and a half. Been well, but,
1: now, uh, Adrian, we've, we've, we've had a bit of a theme um, over the last few podcasts where we're trying to explain to people that are listening that uh, you don't just walk into the park and have them crawl <laughs> into the back of the ute. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure you're helping the
0: cause uh, there. We've, <laughs> we've been experience. dressing this up as hard work, so... so uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. That stag's is uh, called uh, Johnny on the spot crossroads stag. It's yeah. a once in a once in a lifetime and it was not a difficult hunt, it was opportunistic hunt, etc. And um, that that stag had been seen by the game council and many people had looked for him as well, and hoping to be in the right place at the right time. So yeah. make your own luck, Adrian.
0: That's it. You, you catch it from your you know your back deck, so you've got to be there. Yeah, you've got to be there to get them.
2: You're not going to shoot it sitting at your keyboard or on the lounge, not at all. So the more time you can spend out in the field, understanding the habits of the habits of the animal and the habitat that they live in, um, it's going to increase your uh, success rate, your opportunities. Yeah, definitely.
0: Look, it's it's worth saying that for many people, and and I and I know many people, and I'm I'm one of them. You were our introduction to public land hunting. So, um, you know, the first public land hunt I went on was with you. um, And you and I have hunted, you know, we've even done public land road trip hunts where we've just gone exploring. And I know, you know, Ian's mentioned the same. And it's a big list of people um, who have come to hunt public land hunting and successfully come to public land hunting through basically through through knowing you and and hunting with you i think it's worth at this time actually giving that some context and actually talking about how your what your involvement was and actually having some influence over what public land hunting looked like in new south wales i think a lot of people would be quite interested in that and you know just getting that that more that broader picture about what hunting land really means and and the process that it it arrived to in New South Wales?
2: Uh, Look, uh, really, I tip my hat to join your association members down in Sydney, Um, fight for that public land access, people put second mortgages on their home, et cetera, to get it through. Hmm. Um, And it took a, a lot of consultation. Once it got through a lot of consultation, with the landowners, uh, the land managers being, you know, the forestry and so forth, and negotiating that, um, I provided a lot of input into different pieces of land more up in our area, trying to ensure that, and which could be viable, I suppose, for hunting for people from Queensland was open. Um, you know, they open land, they shut land. We've you know, requests to different. State for us to be reopened again you know, because there was opportunity in there. Um, we even discussed um, becoming, like, uh, managers as well. And let we'll talk about conservation you know, groups, um, manage land and so forth. Um, it And besides the forests, which were historically known to have animals, and the, probably the forests, you know, which. Five Hours Drive, of Sydney, not a lot was known about many of the other forests, except for the locals who lived around there and kind of stuck their noses in there once or twice, you know, they have. Um, mm. when they should When these lands opened, there was myself and a few others and we explored many of them. Now, when I say explored, it was going to those areas where... If there was going to be sign, you would find sign. You'd go to feeding areas, look for browse lines and so forth. Look for animal droppings. Going to creeks, wet grounds, look for tracks and so forth. Um, one trip, I over a four-day period, I did forty state forests. Um, we, we, were, we were up before dawn. We weren't hunting. We were um, researching the land. And out of that, I come back, and I'm going. There's game here, not high sign of game, not you know, high density, high population, etc. Not viable there to take down a group of 30 hunters. You know, Might be one person successful every 10 years, you know, not. And it did. We we had land we opened which had rooster on it. But I found sign of two rooster on the whole forest. Did I think that was a viable you know, hunting opportunity? I suppose to try and invest new hunters that come down and spend their time. Um, you know, every you know, uh, it was probably a four and a half hour drive to that forest. Um, so yeah, it was like, yeah, there is deer there, but not enough population for a club based sort of organization to come down and hunt. Um, and so it's many stake forests I've been up. I and if you join us on a trip through um I did a trip right up the coast. I think all the way from you Wharepots know, Harbour and so forth, and for every state forest, I saw plenty of, you know, deer in areas that I knew they were already. I've heard rumours of other species, deer in different forests, so they might, they might live in different habitats. For example, fella might live in, so made adjustment for our search patterns. So we might go through. And I Google map that area. I picked up key points that I think. I've um, looked at rumours. I stop at a stop at the local watering hole, etc., and speak to locals and find out about, you know, what animals are in the area. Um, I have mean, had locals take me out and so, say, "Yeah, you're over there living in that area," and so forth. So lots of research there was, especially in those first early years, to find out where is the best opportunity particularly for Queenslanders, to go to reasonably. Um, you know, there is higher population deer further south. Mm-hmm. That's more like an 11-hour drive, 12-hour drive, to those some of the Victorian you know, border sorts of parks. Mm-hmm. Some of those are under management, uh, ballot system and so forth. On the other hand, there are, and you know, it's been deer and it's been goats and it's been, you know, pigs, et cetera. There's different. Animals in different um, state forests, and so we've always spoken to people. So it's like you want to hunt uh, goats, go into to this forest, pigs, go to this forest here. Um, there's rumors of deer in this region, and there's a state forest within a few kilometers of that area that might be worth a look. Saying there's deer in there, um, we've taken down um, hunters and they've come back and we'll, I'll make that state forest my little background, you know, and got to know the locals. and and stay next door with the locals, for example. Um, You know, rent a house or something and go hunting in the forest next door. Um, And that might be okay for that, but not, if I want to take 30 hunters down, I'd only be 30 fellow living in that forest. Not every forest has game in it. Many forests have mosquitoes. Mm. I've been in a forest, hunted for two days and I didn't even see a bird.
1: Yeah, there are some
2: like that. So, and as I said to many of people who did the um, the licensing course with me, and I said, you get your license, don't all run off to Benu State for us. It's the first one over the border. There's one pig and he's been shot 300 times. Um, <laughs> and you know, he's angry. And, <laughs> yeah, That's right. It's you know, just that and probably some illegal marijuana crops. That's about it. It's all you're going to find there. Um, but it has an opportunity over time, maybe too, because it's in between the two different herds of deer, and the fallow deer are moving in that area. Um, there's a number of species of deer in that region that just don't happen to be in that state forest, and it may not be in my hunting time, but it may be in someone else's hunting time. Those deer will move through that uh, forest. So it's worth every now and then, a couple of years, go down and check for sign of game coming through. But uh, it was very highly booked. Forest because it was the closest one for Queenslanders to go. Mm. I made a particular note of that and was like, don't waste your time. You're gonna go down, you're gonna have a bad hunting experience. It's just gonna be camping, it's gonna be armed bushwalking, and you're not going to see sign again, most likely. Try going a bit further south, try forest leaf, butter, leaf, you know, forest whatever, forest something, try butter leaf. You might see a few more deer there. Yeah. Um, at the target you might see a couple out there and also sign and eat some pigs. Um, uh, the point was that out of all that, for the sorts of hunts that I like to be um, I like to organize and be involved with is where we could bring down um, larger groups of people, have a camaraderie a campfire and so forth. And usually you find that there is um, a reasonable percentage of people will see game. A reasonable number of people will take the game as well. I've had many, many first-time hunters come down, get their first game animal there, on public,
1: and it's such a celebration, isn't it? When when people come into that hunter's camp, you know, you might you might be twenty to thirty people there, and I still remember, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but I might coming back the first year with a with a young buck that he'd been down in some deep nasty gully. And he, and he came in and it was on the back of the ute and everyone was around the fire and they'd finished their hunts and he was the last man back. And, oh, the cheers that went up because someone's brought one into camp. And, you know, over uh, over the week, you know, there could be six, seven, eight, ten deer come into camp and each one's celebrated and, you know, stories are told and it's just such a magnificent experience. Um, same fella the year after came in and, you know, optioned up. Uh, you got a bigger one next year out of the same gully, I think, and, you know, the same celebrations happening. Oh, it's just fantastic. It's really good.
0: I remember when I, the, the, when I was hunting with Adrian down there one year, I took a, a, a good meat animal on the first day, and I, um, you know, I, I took it back to camp and broke it right down. And so that was basically, I'd had a fair, you know, not much esky room left after that one. And that second day when I took that big buck, you know, I think I took the back straps and 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 the uh, the antlers and but that animal was not wasted you know it was the piranhas came in and, oh yeah can we take some yeah go go for it go for it you know that animal was broken down probably quicker than the than the, the animal the day before so everyone said yeah I'll, I'll have some of that I'll have some of that and I think someone actually wanted to, you know skinned it out said oh'll I'll have that skin I'll have that and away it went and I, and I think that is you know that is really a significant part of of Mm. what public land hunting can offer you can get people because you know obviously private land there's issues with access but public land allows you to to get a group of people together um uh like-minded but not necessarily all doing the same thing which is that really interesting dynamic that happens you know there is you'll know that the people I, I'm talking about, Adrian, I can't think of the, the, the guy's name, but he used to come into camp every year with his son. He was, a, a, we lived down Sconeway and he used to, when he, he'd know that we were there and he used to drive up and actually come into camp. He used to bring a 22 and he'd go for a little bit of a wander with his son looking for rabbits. But the majority of the time he was just in camp with his son and just having his son around, you know, just in that environment. And, uh, you know, he. I was talking to him once. And he just said, "You know, we look forward to this all year. This is our thing." And uh, he, I didn't even think he was an ADA member.
2: It was a little bit further north in Scone, if it's the fellow I'm thinking of, and um, he, that's the fellow I mentioned who uh, is now I think Logan Albert Branch Treasurer. Yeah.
0: yeah, did he bring? Did he bring his? Was he the one? He brought his son with him? Might have been yeah. In there. yeah, yeah. It, it was. It was amazing that you know I was talking to him. and He just said, "Yeah, I just, I just love it. Like this is what I come for."
2: I think for two years he came down and he was not a member, and then he elected to become a member, and he elected to become the closest Queensland branch, and so he now undertakes a two and a half hour drive, I think, to come up to the branch meetings. And he goes on every branch hunt. He leads branch hunts now, Mm -hmm. and all around Australia. As I said, after that first couple of years of being successful, he joined us. The next year, he went on four hunts. He got Carlo, um, Samba, um, Red, and Rooster, I think. You know, all on the next year. He came fully committed, fully dedicated. He took advantage of every opportunity But the association can put there. If he heard there was a hunt somewhere, if he heard there was a hunt being run up there in your branch, he'd be going, who do I ring? How do I get onto that hunt? He'd be down there. Absolutely, <laughs> right. he's that sort of a fella. That's excellent. That's good. I think uh, the first hunt I went down with him, he came on a samba hunt. First morning he shoots a, you know, a lovely stag. The next morning he shoots another. I said, "It's enough of that's back to camp for you, son. You're,
0: not, you're the rouse about
2: all of us.
0: Yeah. Give me that, give me that, give me the ammo. You no more ammo for you. It. <laughs> Hand it over. Yes,
1: yes. Well, that's really good. Um, just sort of in closing this off, then, um, are there any other uh, details, tips and tricks, things about Nundal, Hanging Rock, you know, uh, that area? That we've neglected to ask you the question of—that's in the back of your mind—or do you think you've, you've, you've given enough little tips and tricks there for for people to come in and have a go? Uh, I think the one I heard was try and go with a with a group, try and go with a, uh, and not necessarily the ADA. There's other groups out there that that do these things as well. But um, you know, maybe not go it alone to start with is the smart idea. Uh, look, uh, I think the
2: I- first thing is you've got to understand what bear sign is. Hmm. Understand the difference between a a goat scat and a deer scat or whatever the case may be. Understand um, their tracks, what they do to trees, their rubs and so forth, their smell. Understand those things. Um, So you're not always looking for the body or the antlers or the flicker of an ear ear, in the grass or something like that. Sometimes you're just looking for the sign. At least that sign will say to you, I'm in an area where deer live. Mm. That's something you've got to understand because of the size of the forest down there. Deer don't live in every area of the forest down there. You need, and it changes because it impacts of fire, forestry, pressure from hunters, other users. You need to find where that sign is. If you find that sign, you're a successfully hunter now. You are now seeking that animal. know then you probably understand what's its habits. I know there's deer in this area, what's its habits? What's, how's it going to move during the day, you know? Um, where is it going to go? Where are the feeding areas? Where's its bedding areas? Start working out where it's sleeping, you know, that sort of thing, where you can then look the ambush, they get out of their beds. The male is croaking, all the better. So um, many people go down there and, and they might drive around the forest. Don't see fallow buck jumping out of them, you know, and saying, "Here, you know, here I am." You know, and some people go home very negatively. So I always try that people have been identified as least a new hunter as a new hunter at least to take them to get in the car. I'm going to go show you examples of what you are going to look for. Go out. I might even be just down the main road because I've already up trees and so forth. Get out and walk around and going, that's deer poo on the ground there. This been rubbed by a fallow. And there's probably a fallow buck living in this area. There's a tip for you already, you know? So it's mm. start off here and then try and find more sign. It's also about how fresh, because not all fallows seem to live forever. You know, they rub a tree, make a sound, and then they seem to fall over, you know, and they're usually a bit of heavier with lead when they fall over. And I've done that. I've actually looked for sign and hunted the buck, and I come to the conclusion that that buck was shot two days before I started hunting him. Mm-hmm. So you've got to know when to call it off and you're going to go. Sign's getting old. I found no fresh sign. I think he's fallen over because in this cooler, cooler climate, when it's cool down there and it's moist, a lot of that sign stays fresh until leaves and so forth and whatever start you know going over the tracks and that sort of stuff over the scrape and you're kind of going this is an old sign, he's either moved out of the area, we've fallen over someone else has got a, an esky full of me yeah so find that sign find where the animals are this year then start down to narrow your search, then start putting in your stalking or your waiting um, you know I've hunted down there and you know built third blinds sat in little blinds I have done it. I have a chair I take down I've find an area of the Scrape. I'll carry a chair in. I will. I have uh, a little wraparound blind, camouflage blind. I will set that up. I've taken down little bags of salt and sprinkle on the ground to keep the leeches off me. Um, sit and wait for that buck to come in. And I have. I've sat in those areas, and some days I've seen five or six bucks wander through. It's not what I'm after. I'll be younger, and uh, I don't need to shoot every deer I see. And um, yeah, but. Um, Deer that I might pass up, someone else might want to take that animal as well. You know, so, um, and all deer down there seem to fall to the good aim of hunters sooner or later.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Or get run, run over by a logging truck. <laughs> yeah. The slow ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the biggest tip I can probably say and Don't go down there thinking you're going to go home with tomorrow's world record number one fellow buck. Um, probably go down there expecting to have a relaxing time or a challenging time, uh, probably focus on finding the sign. Um, look, at the deer fairly nocturnal, especially under pressure. When you're driving home at night time, it's probably when you're going to see the most deer in your trip and running across the road. I will usually stop my vehicle and put a waymark on my GPS going, I'm coming back tomorrow morning to have a look for where you've come from or where you're going to. It's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, As I good. said, instead of sitting around the drink around the uh, campfire having a drink, maybe have a cup of coffee and and uh, sit out there in the dark and have a listen for what animals are moving. Because deer are typically nocturnal. Especially the bucks at that uh, during the rut period. Okay. And during the winter, different, they'll be out in the open. Good tips.
1: Right, well, uh, Mark, I don't know if you've got any
0: other questions. No, I think I think we've got a, you know, that that's been a great, comprehensive des- description of Nundle, Adrian. Mm. I, I'm I'm sure that a lot of people will really appreciate that. I know, and even though for myself, you know, um, it's it's always good to hear a different opinion and and different experiences around that. Um, I've not hunted Nundle for a couple of years now because of my sons. But, you know, that's where I, and I was hoping to actually take them last year, unfortunately with COVID, take my oldest boy down there for his first first run at the forest. So it certainly kind of got me thinking about next April already.
1: Oh, every one of these makes me think about as soon as the, the borders reopen and we can go and, you know, almost uh, I'm going to go and hunt it the way that Mark said that he hunts it. Because it's completely different to the way that I do it, uh, so it'll be really interesting to take some of these learnings and and head back out into the parks. It's going to be good fun. Um, but I think, yeah, it, we might leave it at that. And um, thanks again, mate. From a, what are we call, what are we going to call you? The the grandfather of state hunting for Queenslanders. Um, you you, you yes. started this forest, mate, and I'll, I'll um I'll make you feel old by saying that I'm sure. And it's not the
0: grandfather, the the, the kooky uncle.
2: <laughs> and look, look, I welcome any of the uh, uh, the viewers, you know, to look uh, off the association and come in uh, for a hunt with us. Um, I was trying to—we you know, were having a conversation about uh, uh, doing this uh, piece here. You know, I tried to estimate how many different hunters have actually rotated through those forests with me, and then I do other hunting um, group organization sort of stuff for a management group. And I sat down and I uh, probably. Estimated, that it's probably two to three hundred, at yeah. least, yeah. at least. Yeah. Um. You know, and as I said, I've had like thirty plus people some years. Others has been a dozen. You know, but over the last, you know, I do 2021, so 15 years plus going down there. let's this I have an average of 20 hundreds or so. It's up in that region, and we've made many new friends. And many new, many hunters who've been down there have joined our ranks, and and uh, from all over New South Wales actually. And they come and visit us uh, down there hunting. So I welcome, you know, viewers to come and join us. Good experience.
1: Yeah, that's great. And look, we've launched a, um, a Facebook page which is named the Hunters Campfire as well, just uh, as a as a way for people to come and ask questions uh, once we post this up. And um, we'll make sure that we get those questions answered and, and forwarded to you if, if if they come your direction um, or via email at um, thehunterscampfire at gmail.com. You can contact us there as well. Uh, and, yeah, we'll make sure we answer those questions. But it's become quite an active little group and uh, it's growing daily. So um, be sure to go in there and, and like that and follow it along and you'll see when these episodes get launched. Um, yeah, that's great. So uh, thanks again, Adrian. It's been a it's been a good chat this evening. and I hope to have you on again at some at some stage to talk more about the international side of of your hunts. That would be fantastic.
2: Yeah, I'd love
0: to hear about that too.
2: Thanks very much, mate. Hope to see you around the camp for it,